Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. The weather here in Vancouver, quite predictably, turned back to rain, so it was, for me, a rather uneventful weekend. Costco was fun. That was pretty much all I can report about. Uh, Long lines, but, you know, never a dull moment when you're walking around Costco buying things you don't really need. Um, Academy Awards were uh, Sunday night, and... um, you know, I've never been a huge Academy Awards guy, but uh, I've watched most years, but I have never been more disinterested in the Academy Awards than this year. And I don't think I'm alone in how people are feeling. Uh, just, you know, most people aren't even seeing the movies that are nominated. And, uh, you know, obviously during COVID, a lot has been turned on its head. But I do want to say thanks for listening again this week and uh, always a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. You're listening and following, subscribing. The podcast is really appreciated. And please don't be shy about spreading the word on social media or with your colleagues. And if you do send out a tweet or an Instagram about the podcast, tag me in that. I'd love I'd love to be connected and see what, what you're doing with that. And also, you know, if you feel up to leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, that would be appreciated as well. Today, my guest is Catlin Tucker. She is an author, speaker, leader, and expert in blended learning, which of course, during COVID has never been more relevant. Catlin is both theoretical and practical. So I think you're really going to enjoy that conversation. In assessment corner this week, I'm going to talk a little bit about the examination of standards and why we have to go beyond the verbs to truly understand the depth of thinking required by students. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My interview with Catlin Tucker is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by talking about our current obsession with false dichotomies and one very relevant one in education that has to stop. Now, on September 20th, 2001, in a joint session of Congress, just nine days removed from the September 11th terrorist attacks on the United States, then U.S. President George W. Bush uttered what has now become one of his most remembered lines in one of his most important speeches. He said on that evening, quote, Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists, end quote. Now, who could argue that point? At the time, emotions were raw, and the sheer determination to respond was at an all-time high. Now, almost 20 years later, and it just seems surreal to say, almost 20 years later. But almost 20 years later, we definitely have more perspective on the event, though it must be said, for those who died, for the thousands more who were directly impacted, and the millions of people for whom 9-11 was a seminal moment, those emotions are still raw and still all too real. But the dichotomy, you're either with us or you are with the terrorists, is definitely one of the easier ones to navigate. Very few things along the geopolitical landscape are that binary. But in the case of 9-11, it seemed to be a global turning point where every country around the world was forced to take sides. The absence of support for the United States would be seen as default support for Al-Qaeda and those who engineered the attack. Now, using dichotomies is not always that serious and consequential. If you are of a certain generation, like I am, you will remember the Pepsi challenge of the 1970s. 
The challenge originally took the form of a single blind taste test. You'd be at the mall or some other public forum. I remember taking mine at the Pacific National Exhibition, which is a fair that happens here in Vancouver, uh, late August and all the way up to Labor Day. You know, there'd be a Pepsi representative at a table. They'd have two cups. One would have Pepsi, one would have Coca-Cola, and you'd take the taste test. And the lineups were huge, everybody wanting to line up. And it's not like you couldn't have done this at home, but there was just something about being around the crowd and having your choice made public. The results of that taste test were actually astounding. In his book, Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking, Malcolm Gladwell outlines the complexity of what was known at the time as the Cola Wars. So in 1972, for example, he says that 18% of all soft drink users said they were Coke drinkers exclusively. Only 4% said they were Pepsi drinkers exclusively. But by the early 1980s, that had completely changed. The gap had closed. Coke was at 12%, Pepsi at 11%. The Pepsi challenge had worked. As advertisers for for Pepsi just kept running commercials of person after person after person choosing Pepsi over Coke. Now at the time, Gladwell says, the uh, Coke executives disputed the results. They ran their own internal tests. And Pepsi won again, 57 to 43. So if you are of my generation or somewhere in the midst of that, you will remember the launch of New Coke right? A new version of Coca-Cola meant to taste a lot closer to Pepsi. It was a disaster. Loyal Coca-Cola drinkers rose up, protested, and that's how we ended up with Coke Classic. Now, apparently, the bias in any sip test, remember the challenge was just a sip, not the whole can. The bias in any sip test is towards sweetness, and Pepsi is definitely sweeter than Coca-Cola. So in the sip test, Pepsi consistently wins out, and yet Coca-Cola today is still the number one selling soft drink. Now, politically, there has never been a more dichotomous time, especially in the United States, where there really are two major political parties. I mean, there are countries that have more than two political parties. And, and so that this gets a little diffused because there are multiple options. But in the United States, being a Democrat or a Republican is not just who you vote for, it's now become an identity. And it defines almost every aspect of your personality, of who you are. And you've heard me talk about this in the past before. We've talked, hinted a little bit about this, but it's an unhealthy place for a society to be as there becomes this kind of herd mentality and a dismissiveness of the other side Uh, even if they might have a good idea. Because if the idea came from the other side, oh, they think that's a good idea? Oh, we can't support that because they think it's a good idea. It just becomes almost automatic. So dichotomies can, at times, be quite effective. But false dichotomies lead to counterproductive conversations that get distracted by straw man assertions that end up detracting from a real and nuanced conversation. One of the most obvious places where I see these false dichotomies is in education is the conversation between grades and feedback, and I've talked about this a lot. The hyperbole and the false characterization detracts from any real grounded conversations about assessment. You know, any hint of, you know, there is a productive way to grade students learning along gradations of quality. As soon as you make that sort of hint or assertion, You are then by some cast as defending the status quo or wanting to support the ranking and sorting of students or you're point obsessed or you're, 
you're regressive or you're stuck in the past or something like that. It's ridiculous. Those assertions are ridiculous because they are coming from intelligent educators who are blatantly exaggerating the research and trying to create these imaginary grade ogres on the other side of the conversation. Like I keep hearing people assert that oh, grades are arbitrary. This phrase gets thrown around. That is entirely an adult issue. If grades are arbitrary, that's because you allowed them to become that. The other one I hear a lot is that students must Maslow before they can bloom. And that sounds good, right? Makes sense. And I can even get my head around it to a point. Of course, we need to take care of students' basic needs before they can immerse themselves in any learning. I get it. But can't we also address psychological needs through blooming, through learning? Why do we always seem to have to silo them? Certainly no one is suggesting that we wait until students are all self-actualized, are we? Is that what we're waiting for? Of course not. Esteem needs, for example, come from accomplishment. That can happen through learning. Safety through learning. No, is that not possible? Does it always have to be either or? Why is it never Maslow through blooming? Why can't I like Coke and Pepsi? Why can't I provide students with effective feedback and at times determine the degree to which students have met the intended learning goals? If, if not that, then what is the point of our expertise and our experience? Now, the latest one, it's not new, but the latest one I keep hearing, and this has to stop, is the dichotomy between knowledge and skills. And sometimes it takes on the form of content versus competencies, something like that. Again, it's a false dichotomy. And here's the real issue with false dichotomies. First, they assume that each choice is mutually exclusive. It's knowledge versus skills. It's grades versus feedback. Even in the case of 9-11, I mean, yes, for Western allies and, and uh, you know, allies of the United States, it was a no-brainer. But in those initial days after 9-11, there were many countries around the world that had to wonder, are we next? Are we a target? Or if we immediately come out with demonstrative support for the United States, will that have some consequence to us that we may not be equipped to handle? You know, things are usually never that clear or that simple. So mutually exclusive is the first one. Second, false dichotomies assume, as many psychologists and researchers assert, false dichotomies are, about coll are collectively exhaustive. So the idea of being collectively exhaustive means that the two options presented are the only options. These are your only two choices. That's it. So mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive leads to, the result of that leads to this idea of, of exclusive disjunction. And that basically means that out of those two options, only one of them is true. So that essentially ignores and hides the fact that it's possible for multiple propositions to be true, even at the same time, or that it's possible for other ideas or propositions that aren't even mentioned to also be true. That's the problem with false dichotomies. The knowledge versus competencies or knowledge versus skills dichotomy is actually quite silly, especially when you think about critical thinking, for example. Like to think critically, and you've heard me say this before, you have to think about something. You, you have to clearly know things in order to think deeply about them. So to the knowledge crowd. You know, this whole, 
romanticized, uh, I could win Jeopardy approach to education is reductive and it's outdated. You just have to look to the revamped curriculum in the province of Alberta and you'll see, especially the social studies curriculum, you'll see it's regressive and honestly, it's, it's a joke. But we have to stop making you know, caricatures out of people who are invested in the idea of knowledge because on the other hand, competency crowd, we have to tone down the uh, knowledge doesn't matter anymore kind of rhetoric. Okay, yes, knowledge needs to be repurposed. And Cassandra, Nicole, and I talk a lot about the means and ends switching places in our book, Growing Tomorrow's Citizens. We talk about how we used to use collaboration to have students acquire content proficiency. And now by switching the means and ends, we use content to teach collaboration, right? The means and ends are switching places. But we still need content. You still need to think. And, and, and then you need to use those uh, ideas, use that knowledge to do something with it, right? Knowing things to know them is trivial. That's why I can't fully wrap my arms around the whole sort of learning for the sake of learning assertion, right? I'm thinking about a, a, a hypothetical conversation you can have with somebody like, why did you learn Spanish? They say, well, I just wanted to learn it. So are, are you going to Mexico or Spain or any Spanish-speaking country? No, not really. No, I have no plans to do that. Do you live in a Spanish part of town? Is there, you know, Spanish-speaking in your area? And No. Uh, do, you, do you have any Spanish-speaking relatives or? No, not really. No. Are you ever going to use it or do anything with it? No. Like I said, I just learned it for the sake of learning it. So what, you just want to be able to tell people that you can speak Spanish? Well, only if they ask. Kind of sounds strange. <laughs> now I get it. I, I know a lot of people make that assertion, you know, don't do it for the grade, do it to learn it. But learning for the sake of learning, you know, sounds really good on social media, but that's not really what they mean. And when they have to explain that assertion, well, Tom, that's not what we mean. We don't mean learning for the sake of learning. We don't want people to learn it for the grade. Then why don't you just say that instead of making these assertions and then having to explain the assertion? Now, there is, of course, some debate in academia and, and especially around critical thinking because there are different views of critical thinking. Some see critical thinking as uh, you know, generic skills and some see that they are context or subject specific. And I've talked about this before in the podcast, where the generalists believe that, you know, critical thinking skills are a discrete set of skills that then once learned are transferred to other settings, whereas the specifist would believe that uh, you have to teach critical thinking skills within specific subjects, right? So there'd be no standalone class called critical thinking. There is real debate to be had in terms of where we fall on that, that because that would, that would have real ramifications for schools. However... The knowledge versus competencies idea, that, that's just a false choice. Because again, think about it. Knowledge versus competencies, right? Mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive. There's only two cho choices and those are your choices. And then exclusive disjunction. One has to be right. And there is no middle ground in these false dichotomies. We are never, never going to have real, meaningful nuanced conversations about the future of education if we can't stop manufacturing these false dichotomies 
that serve only to reduce the complex issues facing educators to pithy little SIP tests where instant reaction gains the short-term win. It's never that simple. We have to start prioritizing thoughtful, nuanced, and intelligent conversations over creating these dishonest caricatures and false dichotomies to try to amplify our position all in the name of retweets, follows, and brand building. And we as educators have to stop falling for it. And we have to stop letting those who create these false dichotomies off the hook. Don't accept this from educators because they wouldn't accept that from their students. We're better than that. We have to start unpacking these false dichotomies, find the nuances, find the meaning, find the real conversations, and stop allowing people to hijack what really are oversimplified explanations and assertions that don't serve the future of education. Joining me today for the interview is Dr. Catlin Tucker. Catlin is a best-selling author. She is an international trainer and keynote speaker. Uh, currently, Catlin is working as a blended learning coach. She is an educational consultant and also a professor in the Master of Arts in Teaching program at Pepperdine University. Catlin has a series of books, uh, best-selling books on blended learning. Uh, there's Balanced with Blended Learning, Blended Learning in Action, Power Up Blended Learning, and also blended learning in grades four to 12. So you can guess what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> so I've been looking forward to that. Uh, Catelyn, welcome to the Tom Schimmer podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you here. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Uh, you're a very popular uh, educator and certainly uh, trying to get you into the schedule was, was a challenge, but I'm grateful that you've taken the time to be here today. And obviously, you know, over the last year, I'm sure that you have noticed that blended learning through COVID, there, there's been an increased heightened awareness of what blended learning can certainly offer the educational experience for students. So we're going to talk about that and explore that today. But I want to begin with your journey. You, of course, like most of us, began as a classroom teacher. Uh, so the question is, why blended learning? Like how did that become the passion? And how do you end up here as an internationally recognized expert and as an internationally recognized leader in blended learning? How did that happen? Well, I credit blended learning for the fact that I'm in education right now because I was about five years into my teaching career and I just remember feeling super disillusioned with this profession. It was nowhere near the kind of fantasy I had concocted of mm -hmm. being a teacher when I was studying in credential school. And I was tired. Kids didn't want to engage. They didn't seem particularly excited to be in my class. And I definitely felt like I was failing. I was failing to engage them and create this classroom I dreamed about. And I remember thinking, maybe I've made just like an enormous mistake. This might not be the profession for me. And it was a late decision and was almost done with college when I pivoted from law to education. And so I thought maybe I made the wrong choice. And it was in that moment of career crisis when I was thinking about changing course that I decided to just push pause and have a baby. So I had my first <laughs> child and figured I'll just take a year off and you know be a mom, a stay-at-home mom. And I 
always joke that like I very quickly realized there is a much harder job than dealing with a room full of disgruntled teenagers and being a mom, a stay-at-home mom (laughs) with an infant (laughs) is harder. So I spent that year at home um, and I started teaching college level writing courses just as a way to make some extra income, mental stimulation. And that was where my interest in technology was peaked. And Mm -hmm. after my year as a stay-at-home mom, when I did go back to the classroom, I very much approached it as one more year. I'm going to give it one more year. Mm -hmm. I am going to just use my classroom like an experimental laboratory and start integrating some of these things that seemed like they had potential in my online classes. And we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. And what happened was that my entire experience as an educator was transformed and it started slowly. I made lots of mistakes, but the immediate impact on my students' engagement was thrilling. And for me, that opened up the door to the path I've been on for the last 10 or 12 years. And really, I just started writing books, sharing kind of strategies I learned through error and kind of correction, um, resources I developed. I started speaking at conferences and I don't know, 10 years later, here I am. And yeah, yeah, working with teachers all over the globe on trying to shift practices. It's funny when you talk about that, because it's always interesting when I, when I speak to many people in, in who do consulting and speaking, they they always talk about how there was never a master plan. It just sort of (laughs) happens one step at a time, right? It's this conference, then it's that conference, it's that request. And then the audiences get bigger and the, the travel gets longer. And and pretty soon you are that, uh, that expert. And there's no question, Catelyn, that you are uh, a recognized expert in the area of blended learning. I'm interested in your, you, you say that your epiphany occurred uh, when you changed the way you approached feedback, assessment, and parent communication. And I found that really interesting. So let's explore that for a moment. Uh, what was your epiphany and, and why was feedback assessment, why were parents' feedback and assessment so crucial to making that occur? How did that manifest? I think my real epiphany, so I had been using blended learning models for quite a while. And I had this moment where I was realizing I was still the person doing the lion's share of the work in the classroom and recognizing that that was a problem, right? Mm -hmm. So in the In the class, really, I see the teacher's job as one being architect of learning experiences, right? We design these learning experiences ideally to position students as active agents at the center of learning. And so as active agents at the center of learning, they need to do the hard work of making meaning and constructing knowledge, both through individual and social processes. And I was still doing too much of that heavy lifting for them. And it was really about thinking through really leaning on the models. Like how do I lean on them to pull some of these aspects of my work that are so time consuming and draining still, still like giving feedback, communicating with parents, assessing student work. Why am I doing all of that work in isolation? Why is that all falling on me when in actuality, I need to start really prioritizing the process when it comes to feedback. I'd like to be giving feedback as students are working so that they're not getting feedback on finished products. They're getting feedback in the moment so they can make adjustments and improve what will be a finished product. And I had to think about how do I create space with these models to get dedicate time to that process? And then how do I do the same thing when I want to sit down and actually assess student work? So if they have spent time writing an essay, working on a project, 
why would I take that all home and grade it in secret and hand these grades back to kids? Why wouldn't I figure out how to lean on a playlist, lean on a rotation to pull kids and have a conversation, conduct a think aloud as I'm assessing their work. So they have total clarity on why they're getting the grades they're getting. Cause for a lot of kids, the grades are kind of still a mystery. And then the parent communication piece, you know, I'm teaching high school students. And even as a coach of elementary teachers who work with younger learners, I think they need to develop the skills, students at a variety of age levels, to be able to own the conversation about their progress, to tell their parents, hey, this is what I'm working on this week. This is what I'm really proud of. This is what I'm struggling. Or, hey, we're working on this assignment. I'm a couple steps behind. This is why. Here's my plan for catching up. Like, how can one teacher be responsible for owning 30 to 150 of those conversations. So I think for me, it was really about starting to ask the question of who's doing the work in this room, in this class, who really should be doing the work and how do I start to partner with students and lean on these models to create space and time and routines that really allow me to connect with learners and for learners to take a much more active role in these pieces of their learning journey. Yeah, you, you um, as you as you're answering there, you, you remind me of just one of my favorite moments in in my work around assessment, which was actually sitting in an audience and listening to Rick Stiggins talk about uh, and the the thing that he said on stage that I will never forget was the person doing the assessing is the person doing the learning, and I thought to myself that is such a great way to look at it because so mm -hmm. often we as teachers sit at the center. And, and we control for sometimes for the wrong reasons, but a lot of times for the right reasons, because we want to do the right work with students. And yet we end up doing such a disproportionate amount of the work. And you're, and you're absolutely spot on, I think, when you talk about the lack of transparency. And again, it's not a cynical approach. It's just sometimes students don't know, like, how did you come up with this grade? Like, where mm -hmm. did my grade come from? Mm -hmm. So I love the idea of kind of pulling back the curtain. And, and uh, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about that as, as we go through, for sure. But, but along a little bit of that through with students, you, you talk about personalized learning and the, you make a nice distinction, I think, between blended learning and personalized learning. And yet you talk about the, the idea that blended learning offers a pathway to personalized learning, um, but that they're not the same. So I'm wondering if you could first, uh, for listeners, draw the distinction between blended learning and personalized learning as, as you sort of articulate it, and then walk us through that pathway. Walk us through how blended learning leads to a personalized learning model for students. Yeah. So one of the things that has been kind of frustrating for me, quite frankly, this year with the pandemic and this sudden shifts and pivots in education is the phrase blended learning has been thrown around quite a bit and not always in a way that I'm thrilled about. Mm -hmm. So I'm very clear when I work with leadership teams and teachers and coaches, I define blended learning as active engaged learning online combined with active engaged learning offline and blended learning is an umbrella term. So there's lots of different models and ways to combine this online and offline learning, but ideally we are focused on positioning that student as active agent. And so the, the various models are incredibly useful to shift the focus to the learner. But when we talk about personalized learning, that's something we do with our students. That, that really involves a partnership 
where we have opportunities to meet with learners, conference with them, talk about their progress, figure out what adjustments need to be made in order to personalize their experience. There's no way for a teacher to just magically know what every learner needs. There has to be that partnership with the learner in order to figure out how do we customize your specific learning path to meet your specific needs. And so blended learning models are great, but you can have a station rotation. You can use flip classroom. You can even create a playlist that is not personalized to a learner's needs. However, you can have a playlist where you have inserted kind of teacher checks or moments where when students reach a particular part of the playlist, they pause and they know they have to meet with you for a conference. And then the goal of that conference can be, hey, let's look at what you've done in this playlist so far. Let's take a look at any informal data that you've produced or you know, if they have formative assessment checks built in throughout, let's look at your work. Let's have a conversation about where, where are you feeling strong? Where you feel like you're struggling? Where do you need support? How might we need to modify and adapt this playlist to help you continue making progress. And so mm -hmm. that's an opportunity, in my opinion, to think about personalization in a sustainable way, where we take the model and then we start to figure out where within that model are we making time to have conversations with individual learners about their specific needs. You, you use the word customization, which I really love because I think sometimes teachers will hear the word personalized learning or the words personalized learning and immediately go to the notion of uh, individualized learning plan and, and, and sort of the students all just sort of carving their own pathway forward. And a lot of teachers get intimidated by that idea thinking, mm -hmm. does that mean I now have to navigate? So is that, is that the, the distinction that you made? Like, how would you respond to a teacher who says, you know, Catlin, listen, I get what you're saying about personalized learning, but I've got 35 students in my classroom right now. How am I supposed to personalize? So that word customization, is that, I, I picked up on this. Is that, is that your, your distinction? Well, I think it's more about, okay, are we building in meaningful choice, right? Because yeah. a student can start to personalize their experience if they have authentic, meaningful choice built into the design of the learning experiences. Mm -hmm. And then for me, it's about that partnership and that, that conversation that we have with kids where we together can figure out how do we customize this experience for mm -hmm. you? What, what adjustments do we need to make for you? Um, mm -hmm. It's not about necessarily every student going in a totally different direction on their own. And it's right. also not like, oh, I use adaptive software and now I've personalized their experience. You know, right. I think it's a more complicated conversation than any yeah. one piece. Yeah. So partnerships, you talk about the importance of partnerships and that's, that's a big part of, you know, what you write about, what you talk about for sure. So blended learning all about partnerships and at its core, it's about a shift in power from the teacher to the learner. So I want to split this next question kind of into two parts and begin first with uh, maybe somewhat of a, a negative spin, which is that there are some teachers, I'm not saying this is most or the majority, but there are some teachers who are simply unwilling to relinquish any kind of control in their classroom um, in, in terms of trying to create that partnership. So uh, why do you think people are so hesitant? Why are teachers so reluctant to at least try to build some kind of partnership with students? Like, what do you think is stopping them from, from doing that? I think the one of the biggest reasons teachers don't want to relinquish control to learners is fear, right? 
if we don't, there's a lack of trust. What will students do with that? What will, what decisions will they make? How will they use their time? Mm -hmm. And the reality is we can't make students learn. We can only create an environment and provide opportunities for them to learn. And they are much more likely to lean into those opportunities, into those experiences, if they enjoy a degree of agency and autonomy, which means we have to be willing to let go of some of that control. It doesn't mean we have to give control over everything all the time, but we have to start giving students the agency to make key decisions about their learning, have the space, quite frankly, to start developing their self-regulation skills. So when I work with teachers and I hear things, you know, oh, students are so disengaged, students aren't motivated, you know, one of the things I'm always thinking is, well, are they disengaged because they don't feel like the learning is interesting or relevant because they don't have any opportunities to kind of kind of look through a lens of interest or make decisions about how they approach something? I think that for a lot of students is where they begin to get disenchanted with education because there are kids who sit in classrooms, physical, virtual, blended, whatever who don't get to make a single decision all day long. And that has devastating impact on their motivation over time. So I think of it, a lot of it's fear, but in fearing what they will do by not, you know, if we were to relinquish control and by holding on even tighter, I think we end up creating a lot of the behaviors and the challenges that are so frustrating as teachers, you know, where yeah. students really aren't invested and they, they're not super engaged in the process. Right. I, I think you're spot on with that in terms of just fear of the unknown. What would it look like? Um, fear of, of the wasting time. And, and a lot of there is that pressure uh, of time that teachers mm-hmm. feel. And certainly what will students do with that time and will they be productive and all of that? It, it can get get down a, a, a bit of a cynical look at at learners and, and thinking that uh, if I don't control the situation, they won't do it or they won't do anything and things like that. But I think, I don't think that's the majority for sure, but there, there is that, that reluctance uh, to, to give up some of that control. But, but the second part of the question for me, which is what I think the vast majority of, of teachers, I think this is more where people are with blended learning and partnership, et cetera, is that they have the willingness to foster those partnerships and the willingness to engage in, in the work but they don't know where to begin. I think a lot of teachers, I think the majority, I don't know if you would agree with that, but I think the majority have the will, but they're not sure how, how to begin. So let's think about, um, you know, that expression, think big, start small, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what are some of the most important first steps that teachers can take in terms of starting to build that kind of partnership mm-hmm. with their students? Yeah, well, in trainings, that's almost always how I end. You know, we cover a lot of ground in trainings and I remind them, like, you do not need to do all of this right now, right? You choose the thing that for you really resonated. So, you know, if you're a teacher who feels a lot of pressure to be at the front of the room, orchestrating the experience, right? Providing instruction, modeling, giving kids directions for how to complete tasks. Well, maybe your first step is exploring the role of video in that, right? So if you're going to say the same thing the same way to everybody, be it instruction, a model, directions, maybe that's an opportunity to play around with making a video and allowing kids to control the pace. Because 
as they kind of self pace through a video, we all of a sudden get a little bit more freed up in that room. We can move around. I think honestly, the biggest barrier to connecting with students in a classroom is just the amount of time teachers talk. And there's a lot of pressure to feel like we have to cover a lot of ground, explain a ton of concepts. And so I get it. So maybe that's a first step. If I'm in an elementary classroom and I have a really diverse group of learners, skills, abilities, language proficiencies, then maybe I start with station rotation because I really want to be able to spend time with small groups of learners drilling into what they specifically need. So typically I just say, choose one model, the one that speaks to your specific need as a teacher and play around with it. Know you are going to make mistakes. You're going to stumble, you're going to fail, and that has to be okay. And I actually think it's a great thing for kids to see us experiment and fail because how often do we put them on the spot in a class and ask them to take a risk and potentially fail? So for me, like you ask how I got here and blended learning to this expertise. I mean, I almost feel like it's just years of making one mistake after another, like <laughs> looking at that mistake, figuring out how to yeah. not make it again or how to improve the experience for learners. What supports mm -hmm. or scaffolds can I design to make it go more smoothly next time? And then just kind of continuing to make progress forward. And that's all we can do. So start small, choose one strategy, one model, play with it. And once you feel confident, then you can add. Yeah. I, the, I think it's, it's all in almost any endeavor, just the idea of picking one strategy, you know, refining it, getting good at it, getting comfortable with it, and then beginning to expand your repertoire is always yes. good advice. The other thing that I, I love about what you talk about is building a culture of reciprocity within the classroom. So I, I love that. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, what do you mean by that? And, and how does that grow within a classroom? Well, I talk a lot about more like a community of learning, right? Okay. So all yeah. of my work is grounded in like the community of inquiry and like, how do we really tap into this like collective potential in this room? And so for me, Again, in order to really develop a community of learners where students are engaging with each other, with the teacher, they're, they're learning with and from each other, that also requires a degree of letting go as an educator and just acknowledging that we as a collective, we as a class have so much more potential than any one member, including the teacher. And so how do we foster that relationship building? How do we help students to develop their social presence, their, their willingness to kind of assert their social and emotional selves in this, this learning environment and take risks to construct and confirm meaning together? And so there's so many different pieces that are in play with that, but the teacher is fundamental to the development of that community of inquiry and fostering the connections between those learners so they feel safe engaging with each other and taking risks and sharing ideas and being vulnerable in this space, which is, in my opinion, all essential to a really deep learning experience and a right. high-functioning community of learners. Yeah, that's that's what it's really all leading to, right, is to, to create the conditions, remove the barriers, create the conditions, yes. and allow students to get to that deeper learning. Speaking of depth, uh, you draw such an important connection between blended learning, right? The partnerships, uh, the shift in power, you, you draw a great connection between blended learning and metacognition. 
And, um, you know, I think obviously in 2021, I think we are at a place where teachers more than ever understand and are aware of the impact that metacognition has on student learning and how important it is. The dilemma for most is often the time. Like, you know, in other words, uh, we know it matters, but it's hard to make the time, find the time, create the space in order to include metacognitive activities and exercises into our daily routines. So, what is it about the blended learning model that creates a more seamless opportunity for metacognition to become more habitual? I mean, I don't know if it's the blended learning piece so much as it is when we embrace blended learning as educators, it demands a higher level of intentionality behind right. our design work, which a lot of teachers at first are like, eh, that's a lot. <laughs> it's going to take right. time. <laughs> and I'm like, at first, for sure, there's a learning curve. But with that intentionality, and with this recognition that really to truly be our partners in this learning journey, students must be comfortable thinking about their thinking and thinking about their learning. So whether it is a teacher who says, okay, I start every class with a welcome task. Well, welcome tasks are often bell ringers or do nows, but like, why couldn't be Monday set a goal for this week? What is it academically, personally, behaviorally you want to work on and spend 10 minutes flushing out exactly what you're going to do, actions, behaviors this week to try to accomplish this goal. And maybe we start by saying, hey, last week we did this assignment. I want you to take a look at it with a critical eye, use this simple rubric and self-assess this piece, right? So whether it's pulling it into something like a welcome routine or whether like I did in my own classroom, you know, once a week, an online station in a station rotation, which ran about 25 minutes was open up your ongoing self-assessment document and select a piece, your choice, student agency, right? Like which piece right. do you want to examine with that critical eye and then complete a self-assessment and tell me why are you putting yourself at a particular level of this on this scale of, toward mastery? Like, what are you seeing in your work that is informing this choice? And where might you need additional support? So it's about building in routines and, and it does take time. But you know what? We make time for things we value in a classroom. And if what we value is cultivating independent learners who can develop their metacognitive muscles, their self-regulation skills, then we have to recognize this is time well spent, even if it's not in a pacing guide, even if it's not in our standards. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And, and certainly that opportunity to create conversations through that self-assessment model and the self-regulation of learning. We know that connection that, that self-assessment or assessment in general can really feed the self-regulation of learning uh, process. And, and in reverse, we know that because students are, it's, it's interesting because as students are engaged in more metacognition, we know that that has an impact uh, on their results as well. And so hard to find the time, but we know how important it is. And I love the idea of building in routines. I'm a big routine guy. So the idea <laughs> of, of just sort of, here's my routine, here's the regular rotation, here's kind of how we engage in the work. I think that's really great advice on, on how to kind of start to, because I think once you get refined at it, you can sort of do it, do it in a little more loose fashion. But, but early on, having that kind of predictable routine around it doesn't mean you're not being creative or thoughtful. It just means that you keep reminding yourself to review back there. Um, I love that. And, and I want to circle, so speaking of self-assessment, I want to circle back to assessment in general, because mm -hmm. as listeners know, uh, assessment is 
obviously a, a, an area for me of, of great importance and focus in the work that I do. So I'm really interested in your perspective on assessment. So how does assessment uh, specifically change, expand, evolve in a blended learning model? What are some of the key aspects that teachers can either, you know, will either anticipate as they begin to embark upon this journey, or in the midst of developing their blended learning models, what are some things they might experience from an assessment perspective? I just want teachers to stop using grades and points as carrots. I think I cannot, well, I cannot tell you how many times I have run, say, a station rotation session. And you can just see the wheels turning and then somebody will say, how do you grade this all? And I'm kind of like, e-break, what are we grading? Why are we grading it? So yes, there are four stations. Does that mean students have to pop out a product at every station that we need to assess? No. And one of the things I've written about, you probably saw it in my book, was really this very simple flow chart that I began to use when I recognized, hey, I'm telling students that learning is a process, but you know what? I'm so overloaded by grading and putting points on everything that I actually am not giving anybody an opportunity to revisit, revise, improve, resubmit because I can't handle it, because I'm slapping points on things that quite frankly don't need points on them. So for me, I had to take a step back and start really asking myself, why are you grading that, right? If it's practice and review, why would I grade that? Like kids need a safe space to fail. Instead, put them in groups, pair them strategically, give them an answer key, give them an exemplar and a rubric and ask them to look at that review and practice and figure out what is it telling them about their skills and their abilities and what they might need as learners. And if it's worked toward a process, don't allocate points for every step along the way, really focus on giving them focused, actionable feedback so that when they get to the end of whatever this process is, they have a stronger product. And if we start to kind of scale back just the volume of things that we are feeling like we need to grade, assess, put points on, and we really focus on assessments, finished products, then all of a sudden, you know, if a kid gets an assessment score or a grade on a finished product and they're devastated, they're like, oh my gosh, this is not okay. Like, I know I can do better. Then we have the bandwidth to say, all right, do better. Go back and keep working with this essay. Feel free to refine this part of this project. I'm happy to reassess it. I have the bandwidth because I'm not running around putting points on everything because I'm scared if I don't, kids won't do the work. Right. Right. I was just going to ask you that because I know I get that. I get this statement or this assertion all the time. So I'm curious as to what your response is to folks when they say, Catlin, if I don't grade it, they won't do it. How do you respond to that? I disagree. I <laughs> fundamentally disagree. And it's not an easy answer. What I say to them is, and it's all in that balance with blended learning book. It's like, a, it's a really complicated puzzle of the metacognitive skill building and students starting to really appreciate the impact of the work that they're doing on themselves, their growth, their learning, their development. It's also about owning their progress with that conversation with the parents. It's about allowing students to advocate for themselves and rework pieces and reassess. And then I even write in that book about I, you know, before I would spit out a grade, I gave kids an opportunity. Look at the grade book. It's digital, right? Does this feel like an accurate grade? And if not, 
submit a Google form with a request for a great interview. So we can sit down, you can bring evidence that you think shows you've done work above and beyond. And in order to qualify for that great interview, they can't have holes on key assignments. So they have to double back and fill those in before they even qualify for a great interview. So it doesn't take very long for them to understand I have agency in this class. I have agency over my grade and I can decide what grade I get in this class by how much I'm willing to put into it. And that it takes time, but it is such an exciting shift to witness as a teacher. Yeah, it, it is uh, the empowerment and the agency, as you say. And it's not the case where students are just blindly uh, giving themselves grades, but no. they're no. they're having to make the case and they're having to present evidence. They're having to yes. justify their claims, which is an important aspect of any self-assessment exercise, which is what makes you say that and what evidence do you have to support the claim? Uh, the way we would ask them to formulate an argument in any sort of writing situation or anything, they have to continue to do that. I also previously in your your response, I also think that you've really picked up on a on a, almost a, a double layered issue that we have around grading. One, of course, is the grading everything, uh, which is problematic from a formative perspective and not giving that time for practice and that, that space mm -hmm. to make mistakes and stumbles. But it's also the points, the idea of accumulating points versus you know a rubric or criteria which identifies gradations of quality versus sort of point accumulation. And I think that trying to address those two ideas, I think are, are, are really critical in the work around assessment that really works nicely with, with blended learning for sure. Absolutely. I think of that point accumulation, like I just imagine kids like this Pac-Man game. It's like, that's the, that becomes the point, right? That's not right. the learning, not the progress. Yeah. And that's a yeah. huge problem. And I think, you know, it's in, in fairness to students, uh, one expression I use constantly is that what adults give their attention to is what students and teenagers eventually believe is important. And so if all we're ever referring to or talking about is points, 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 grades, 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 that's what young people are going to think matters to us. And, and they're going to have that cynical uh, idea of, well, if you're not grading it, I'm not doing it because that's what we've nurtured in our school. Kids don't come to school as grade grubbers. They don't even know what grades are in kindergarten. And then they, and then the system, we as adults kind of introduce the system to them and then lament the fact that when they're 15, they're asking us how many points is this worth? We have to take some responsibility for that, I think. So, <laughs> but uh, anyway, we could talk about that for hours, I think, and uh, lots, lots of those issues. However, in fairness, I do think the conversations about grading are vastly improved from where they were a decade ago. I think more and more teachers are coming on with, with that. Okay. So let's finish up with a synthesis. Uh, listeners, you've heard Catlin refer to many different models. She's talked about station rotation, et cetera. So Catlin, I'm going to ask you to sort of give us a synthesis of the, the four kind of main blended learning models that you talk a lot about uh, in your books, et cetera. And let's start with the station rotation model. What, what exactly does that look like? Well, it's looked really different this year and it's been so exciting. So let me just say all of the models that I have worked with teachers in the last 14 months, they're blended learning models, but they're, you can think of them as nimble, right? They can mm -hmm. fluidly go online. So I've done entirely virtual station rotations. They work beautifully in the physical classroom, or even now in these simultaneous concurrent classrooms, they're incredibly flexible, which is exciting. So yeah. when we think about station rotation, pre-pandemic, we're, we're thinking about 
groups of learners in the classroom rotating through teacher-led online, offline stations. And you might have five stations, four stations, three stations. It just depends. But it is that rotating. And this year, the adjustment that's had to happen is that, you know, instead of a, a learn or a station being a physical location in the classroom, it's really just a learning activity and students are shifting from one to the other. And the benefit is you take this larger class and you have smaller learning communities. Teachers have dedicated time to work with smaller groups of learners. It's easier to consistently differentiate we can connect learners for conversation and collaboration, and they enjoy a higher degree of control over the pace at the, of their learning at the non-teacher-led stations. So I love station rotation. Yeah, yeah, you've mentioned it several times, and it, it definitely, you can see the, the personalization, the intimacy that you can get with smaller groups, having them rotate, also keeping activities fresh, et cetera. What about whole group rotation model? That's an interesting uh, concept as well. What does that look like? Yeah, so whole group actually in the initial taxonomy was called the lab rotation, the idea okay. that the whole group would work offline in a classroom and then the whole group would rotate online in a computer lab. Well, now okay. with one to one carts of devices, we don't need to leave the physical space. So the idea is that the teacher is very intentionally rotating the entire group between online offline, online, offline activities. And with those online activities, we have this opportunity to give students meaningful choice, whether that's, I want to read an article, watch a video, listen to a podcast, or I'm going to log into this program and get my specific practice and where I'm at as a learner. And then how is the teacher really strategically using that time when students are engaged in those online pieces to pull individuals, pull small groups, conference feedback, reteach additional models. Yeah. So that one tends to be a little easier for secondary teachers to wrap their minds around. Um, mm -hmm. They tend to see station rotation as like an elementary kind of strategy, which it is not. It is universally helpful. Um, mm -hmm. But sometimes if I have a resistant secondary group, we'll start with whole group rotation because I think that one's a little easier for them. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a, a nice uh, entry point to kind yes. of get a feel for what a rotation might look like before you get into those stations. Um, uh, certainly the one that is probably most familiar to listeners and the one that is probably most, uh, I suppose, uh, talked about, and, and I want to get to a second part of this in a moment, is the flipped classroom. Uh, so let's, let's uh, a synthesis of what a flipped classroom is, uh, what it would look like, and then I have a follow-up question to that. Yeah, so initially the flipped classroom was uh, the idea that we're going to capture instruction, lectures, whatever, and make that available via video. And students would watch those at home for homework. And then that class time where we're all together could be spent in practice application where kids have teacher peer support because it's often during practice and application that they trip and they fall. And I tend to say flipped learning more than flipped classroom because I'm trying to get away from this connotation that we're sending all these videos home with kids because I actually think there's a lot of benefit also in leaning on video strategically in the classroom. I think whenever we can give students that control over the pace, right, they can pause, they can rewind, they can watch it half a dozen times if they need to, that's going to be beneficial. And in my own work with schools and districts, I also really point out there are ways to make strong video content 
But to really maximize its effectiveness, we have to build a complete learning experience around it. So like what's happening before that video? What are we asking kids to think about or how are we asking them to engage when they watch the video? And then what do they do when they exit out of the video? So Mm -hmm. it's bigger than just video. And that's where I spend a lot of my time and energy in trainings is kind of helping groups learn about how to maximize that experience. So that was going to be my follow-up question, which was, you know, you certainly on social media and other platforms, you hear people talk about, well, I do flipped learning, I do flipped learning, I do flipped learning, but cautionary tales about the idea of say flipped learning light, where people are making the assertion that I do flipped learning, but when you when you were look at it, you realize it's really falling short of the promise of, of, of what a flipped learning experience should be all about. So if you were to give advice to teachers uh, to t- try to avoid you know, certain steps or to avoid certain things or make sure you do that. I think what you just mentioned there is one of them. Any other sorts of advice that you might have so we can avoid flipped learning light? Well, and I, I mean, flipped learning light is one thing just, and I think of that as just throwing videos at kids and like asking them to watch it. And we don't really know if they're thinking critically about the information in the video, but I also think there's like flipped learning heavy, which are these drag videos, which are way too long, (laughs) way too dense. It's like shorter videos are better period. So really being focused in our videos and making maybe a few videos as opposed to one long video, because kids just, it's hard for them to stay tuned into these long videos. (laughs) One, one epic lecture. Uh, Here we go. Fasten your seatbelts, right? You've also mentioned a few times uh, today, the playlist or kind of the individual rotation. So let's, let's finish up by talking a little bit about that. Yeah. So think about your Spotify playlist. You have one song after another and a playlist for the classroom is similar. You have a collection of learning activities that students move through. I always have them move through kind of in order. So they're very intentionally placed in a specific order. And you might have a playlist that's like a novel study playlist. You might have a grammar playlist. You might have a a science experiment playlist or a project-based playlist. Like Oftentimes I think teachers or a five E's instructional model playlist, right? I don't think teachers always understand how like open the possibilities are. You might have a playlist that runs two days or two weeks. So Mm -hmm. the scope can really change, but the idea is grounded in standards and skills, has very specific learning objectives. Um, Kids are working towards some kind of a product. And Mm -hmm. like I said earlier, I love, I love to start by differentiating playlists, which is I always make three versions of a playlist. And then within each version of the playlist, so I have kind of my middle of the road, my advanced, you know, for next level challenge, and then my mm-hmm. more scaffolded. But within it, those I think those teacher checks and those conferencing moments, that's really where we have this opportunity to, like I said earlier, personalize a playlist mm-hmm. and make sure mm-hmm. it's continuing to meet students' needs as they progress through it. Yeah. Love that. Um, as we finish up here, Catlin, any final words of wisdom or advice for teachers now? If they're energized, they're excited, they've listened to the podcast, they're they're ready to explore blended learning and its possibilities. Any words of wisdom or pieces of advice you might offer them? 
I mean, I'm thrilled if they're excited. What I will say to teachers is I know it's felt like this year is just one thing after another that's new, but with blended learning, with these models, what I see as an opportunity is for teachers to build their teaching tool belts where they have multiple models so that as they move forward, whether they're in class, they're online, it's a combination of the two, they have this really nimble skill set and tool set where they can say, what is the objective of this learning experience or this learning cycle? And which of these models is gonna be most effective? Because I still think there are a lot of teachers who are basically reaching for the same model every single time because that's all they have. And it's like, they're trying to make that one model work for all of these different things that they actually need to get done. And so for me, it's about let's cultivate, let's build this tool belt that allows us to be successful regardless of the teaching and learning landscape that we're functioning yeah. in. And that's what I think blended learning can help us to do. Yeah. My advice to those wanting to explore blended learning is to read Catlin's books and follow Catlin on, on Twitter. And you will definitely get uh, an education in what, <laughs> in what, in what blended learning is all about. Uh, fantastic. Uh, uh, listeners, I, I will uh, mention at the end the ways that you can uh, follow Catelyn and uh, and and her website and all the ways you can connect as well. Uh, but uh, Catelyn, this has been great. I really enjoyed the conversation. We're going to finish up today with a bit of a fun segment. Uh, three questions I always ask everyone I interview. Uh, just a chance for us to get to know you a little bit on a more personal level. Nothing too intrusive, but... Uh, <laughs> A way to kind of get some insight as to um, how Catlin thinks uh, about uh, about things that are just not that important. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's here's the first one, uh, and it's a it, I've, this is a would you rather? Uh, would you rather go into the past and meet your ancestors, or go way into the future and meet your great 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 grandchildren? I would rather go into the future and meet my great great grandchildren. Okay, okay. Any any reason any particular reason why you'd you'd well, want to do that? Well, my sister just had her first child, so I'm an auntie for the first time and okay. so I'm just enjoying uh being around a fat little baby and so the <laughs> idea of meeting a fat little baby in the future that came yeah. from uh one of my children's children is yeah. very exciting. Yeah, oh, wonderful. Yeah. There there's nothing quite like that uh that that newborn, uh, just every everything about it. I yeah, there's that's uh, definitely something that's a draw for all of us as aunts mm -hmm. and uncles for sure. Um, okay, number two, what famous person, actor, musician, athlete, what famous person, if you met them, would immediately turn you into a pre-adolescent? It would just make you absolutely just a a, a fangirl over them. So embarrassing. It would be Maya Angelou. And I would be so embarrassed by my behavior in front of her because I, oh my gosh. I mean, Maya Angelou, her books, you know, I've taught, I know why the cage bird sings so many times I had to go to bat to keep teaching that book because people wanted to censor it out of our district. And I was like, no, it's Maya Angelou. And like, I'm, I'm so sad when she died, but like listening yeah. still to her interviews and her yeah. reading her poetry. I mean, I think I would just be so speechless. It would be embarrassing. <laughs> I was going to ask you, you said you, you'd be embarrassed. I'm, I'm, I was curious as to what exactly that would look like. But I, I would be stammering thought, like a yeah. total fool. Just like, yeah. Ah, yeah. I can't yeah. believe it's her. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how, how there are those people in the world who, who turn us into, you know, children. Uh, yeah. As as full grown adults, they they turn us into children. Um, last question: 
what's your favorite way to waste time? Oh, you know, I'm terrible at relaxing and wasting time. I think the closest, the closest I get to wasting time and it's not wasting time, but it's just on my, my daily, like walk with my dog, which is just mm. the time when I get to like, get outside of my head and be outside, but it's not wasting time because I'm being active, but yeah. Yeah. I wish I was better at relaxing. I really am not. <laughs> my sister, my sister is amazing. She can like yeah. chill on the couch, watch Netflix. And I just yeah. don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Well, you're, you're, I don't know if, I don't know what her line of work is, but I would imagine it's, uh, you know, with, with the work you do, Catlin, you're, you're always, you know, it's, it's always available. There's always an email. There's always There's something always you can something do. So, do. so it is definitely hard. Okay. One final question as we finish up today. And it's a question I ask everyone I interviewed uh, so far and will continue to do so. And it's a question about success and happiness. Uh, it's a theme I'm trying to run through the podcast and thinking about just what success means to us. So the question is quite simply, if a stranger stopped you, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? I, when I feel most successful is really when I have been asked to do something, given an opportunity that I've been scared of, that's been daunting, that I really didn't know whether I could do it. And my knee jerk response was to want to say no. And I did it anyway and was successful. Like I saw it through or I did the thing I was scared of or I wasn't sure I could do. And it's always in those moments where I'm like, wow, I'm so capable. I feel so successful. Yeah. I love that idea of overcoming the fear and 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 coming out on the other end and having that uh, that feeling of accomplishment and certainly mm -hmm. gives us more confidence or a little more confidence going into those uh, moments mm -hmm. going forward for sure. Uh, listeners, you can follow Catlin on Twitter. I would really encourage you to do so. Uh, her handle is at Catlin underscore Tucker. Uh, you can always also follow Catlin on Instagram. It's at Catlin Tucker. Um, and her website as well, www.catlintucker.com. Catlin is also the host of her own podcast. <laughs> it's called The Balance. So Catlin, tell listeners a little bit about the podcast, uh, what listeners can expect uh, when, when they hear the podcast. So as a person who struggles to relax and struggles with balance, uh, I really wanted to shine a light on this topic. I know most teachers really struggle with that work-life balance. There's so many demanding aspects of this work that we do. And so I bring experts on, we talk about all manner of things, but we always tie it to this idea of balance and striving for a healthier balance in our lives. Yeah. So yeah. I feel like I learn as much from the guests as probably the listeners, but I yeah. think it's such an important topic to shine a light on. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Um, it seems more than ever uh, challenging to find balance in our lives because there's this 24 hour, seven day a week, social media cycle, mm -hmm. news cycle, everything that's going on. So, uh, uh, and so listeners uh, really encourage you to uh, take a listen to The Balance uh, featuring uh, Catlin and some some great guests. You've had Katie Novak on recently, had mm -hmm. Jay McTie on, uh, and Jay was on this podcast as well in February. And it was uh, just a, you know, he's a, wealth of information for sure. Fantastic. Yeah. Catlin, I really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for joining me. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to spend a bit of time talking about examining standards or learning goals and why we have to go well beyond the verb just to understand fully what it is the student is expected to do. 
So a lot of people talk about, you know, look at the verbs, look at the verbs, look at the verbs. And, and when you examine a standard or a learning goal or an expectation or a competency, again, whatever the intention is, the verbs do help you to a point. The verbs definitely help you identify, you know, the assessment method. When you see words like describe or explain or investigate, you know, it will help you understand that distinction in terms of what the method is. But the verbs don't always tell you the depth of thinking that the students are going to have to reach. And so there is some limitation to just limiting yourself to the verbs. Um, both will help us with assessment design. We have to know the, the cognitive complexity or what the verb is telling us. But then we also have to know the depth of thinking, right? Between those two, we can certainly plan, you know, high quality assessments, very, you know, cognitively rigorous tasks that really get to the depth of understanding students are supposed to demonstrate. But you can't get there with just the verb. And we're going to explore that a little bit. So I'm going to use an example of a standard and we'll kind of walk you through the gist of what I'm talking about here in terms of understanding how to design your assessments. So again, if it's, here's the standard I want to use as, to kind of anchor our conversation today. Let's say that this standard is to seek and analyze patterns, trends, and connections in data, including describing relationships between variables, dependent and independent, and identifying inconsistencies. Now, I don't, I'm not asking you to memorize that or anything like that, but I'm going to keep coming back to that as a way of, of anchoring this conversation, right? So when we look at that standard, we think about, you know, three of the main verbs in that standard or that outcome, seek analyze and describe. So when you think about those three, seeking obviously is going and getting, but the analyzing and describing lends itself more to constructed response. So when you look at that standard, you think to yourself, well, choosing an answer won't be sufficient. So constructed response is the way that we need to go. Now, depending on how you design the task, this could become a performance task if it, again, tries to attempt to emulate the authentic context within which this learning is meant to be applied, but it doesn't have to. But remembering that performance tasks are a subsidiary of constructed response, right? So seek, analyze, describe. So now we know that constructed response is the direction we need to go, but that doesn't tell us everything we need to know because we would need to know how expansive does this constructed response need to be? You know, again, we know the format, we or we or the method at least, and within that we can have different formats. Um, again, the method is constructed response. Within that, we could have different formats. It could be a written response, type response, oral response, video response. It could, there could be all sorts of ways that that we allow students to demonstrate their learning. And again, that as a reminder from previous episodes where I talked about the difference between a method and a format. Assessment methods are not really interchangeable, but inside the method, formats definitely are. Okay, so we've got a, we've got a standard here that allows us to know the cognitive complexity, but we have to go a little bit deeper to understand. So when you look at a standard and you look at it through the lens of say, Bloom's taxonomy, the revised taxonomy, Derek Box taxonomy, Whatever the case might be, you recognize that the verb analyze is a pretty sophisticated, cognitively rigorous uh, expectation. So you would find that near the top of the taxonomy of learning. And what the taxonomy gives us, of course, is the cognitive rigor of the learning. But it doesn't give us the depth of thinking. As far as the depth of thinking is concerned, we can lean on 
you know, Norman Webb's depth of knowledge framework. And of course, back in December, we had Eric Francis on the podcast to talk a lot about DOK. But as we think about Webb's depth of knowledge framework, we think about DOK1 being the recall of facts, terms, concepts, procedures, et cetera. It's basic comprehension. DOK2 is the application of concepts and, and the procedures. And there is some processing that has to occur when you're when you're at DOK2. When you're at DOK3, we're, we're now talking about the application. It requires a little bit of abstract thinking, some reasoning, um, and probably some more complex inferences and then when we're at DOK4, we're really talking about, you know, extended analyses or investigations. It requires uh, a synthesis, uh, analysis, maybe over extended periods of time. Uh, it's non-routine. So even just kind of adding different variables to the other depths of DOK levels can actually create a DOK4 situation as well. And so the difference with with Webb's DOK framework is that Webb's is about the depth of thinking the students are, are supposed to demonstrate. And how these two come together, they are not the same because we have to know that the cognitive rigor of the learning is what the taxonomy is for. The depth of thinking is what DOK is for. And the key to all of this is to really understand that Every verb can be taken to various DOK levels, right? So just because you have a verb that says analyze, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to get to the depth of thinking because analyze can be taken to a number of different levels. So let's let's take a look at that for a moment. Let's talk about analyze. What is analyze? Well, it's to examine in detail the, the constitution or the structure of something, right? We're, we're kind of picking it apart. We're looking to interpret, we're looking to explain, we're looking to figure out sort of connections and patterns. Uh, but we're really, when you think of analyzing, we think of nitpicking, we think of pulling apart, right? So I could have a standard that says analyze, but actually create a DOK1 task. If I ask you to go analyze a data set and just pick something out of it, just to retrieve information. So I might say, take a look at this data set how many adults between the ages of 20 and 29 agreed with this policy? And you just go into the data set, you sort of analyze its different components, and you just pull out that information. That's analyzing, but that's analyzing at a DOK1 level, right? You're just going to get information, or you're just trying to find things, or you're trying to determine the existence of things. Whereas I could ask you to analyze something for the purpose of sorting it or organizing it or classifying it, right? So if I say, okay, I want you to reorganize this along certain demographics. So take the data and reorganize it in a way. Well, now we're getting to DOK2 because you're having to do something a little bit more than just go get information, but it's really procedural, right? We're just we're just doing a little bit of mental processing, but it, but it's not really sort of abstract thinking. You're just reorganizing, right? You're you're choosing, you're organizing, you're classifying, you're sorting, you're doing that that sort of activity. Now, to get to DOK three, still analyze, but you're analyzing for the purpose of maybe making an inference. You know, what conclusion can you draw? What what can you synthesize from this? Um, do you see any general trends in the data? Uh, doing some comparison and and again some some more abstract thinking about what the data is is telling us, right? So now we're getting to DOK three, still analyzing, but now we're getting to the depth of thinking. So again, you can't just look at the verb and know the full extent of what the assessment task needs to be so, so because you might fall short 
of the spirit of what the, the standard was, was meant to, to be about. Remember the standard we were talking about, describing the relationship between variables and identifying inconsistencies. So there's a little bit of inconsistency identification there. So identifying sounds like DOK1, but really when you're looking at inconsistencies, unless they're blatant, we're going to have to do some thinking around that. And certainly describing relationships is about making connections and doing some comparisons, and you may in fact make some inferences around that. So for me, the standard of seeking, analyzing patterns, trends, and connections in data, including describing relationships between variables and identifying inconsistencies, really is about at least DOK3, if not over an extended period of time, and that's where we get to DOK4. So DOK4 is an extended analysis, or maybe there's an investigation involved, right? This could be an inquiry-based uh, project that and, and learning uh, experience that the data is gathered over time and pretty soon we're, we're we're drawing some conclusions and we're not just doing it in an acute moment we're doing it actually over an extended period of time there's some synthesis involved there'll be some deeper analysis maybe across multiple contexts maybe there's some again non-routine problem solving um, so i'm looking at a variety of data sets i'm looking at different formats of data um, and maybe I have to come up with some abstract kind of thematic generalizations about it. So these are these are the kinds of things that we have to think about when we think about what is what is the standard actually asking the students to do. And of course, the tangent from here is to say the standard and the expectation generally is at DOK3. So that DOK3 task would be the grading ceiling. It would not be the instructional ceiling. We have no issue with pushing kids past those instructional ceilings. But again, if our, our grading is going to be consistent, reliable, et cetera, we're going to have to make sure that we have a common understanding of the, the depth of thinking required to reach high levels of performance based on the criteria. Now, if you want to push students past that, then that's great. I mean, that, we got to nurture their curiosity and extend them as, you know, as they show an interest in a particular topic. But for your standards, we have to know the depth of thinking to identify kind of the grading ceiling, right? The summative assessment ceiling, if you will. But as I just sort of outlined for you, if you're only using the verbs to analyze your standards, you probably are going to fall short at times. Now that's not going to mean or suggest that it's egregious, but you you simply won't know for sure whether you've reached the appropriate cognitive complexity in terms of the depth of thinking that the students are supposed to demonstrate. So again, think of it this way. Like when you when you look at a standard, ask yourself, what are the students going to do? And then what are they what are they really trying to accomplish? Right. So we might say the students are going to, and then fill in the blank with the Bloom's levels, so they can, and then fill in the DOK level. Right? So in the case of, of the standard we were just talking about, I might say that the students are going to seek and analyze patterns, trends, and connections in data so that they can describe the relationships uh, between the variables as well as identifying the inconsistencies. Right? So that's a way to kind of look at it. So yes, we have to look at the verbs. The verbs help us identify generally the assessment method. And the method will help us know whether selected response, constructed response, or performance assessment is appropriate. But don't stop there. Make sure you read past the verb and understand what is the depth of thinking that the student has to understand in terms of identifying you know, the task and how, how the student's going to show 
the appropriate depth of thinking that is required by the standard. Verb is helpful, but it's, it's simply not enough. Now, put those two together and you're going to have a much clearer understanding of the performance expectations, right? You Cognitive rigor, depth of knowledge or depth of thinking, and suddenly you are able to really target a sophisticated learning outcome and, and create a task that rises to that level and that makes and, and fulfills the promise of what the standard is, is meant to do. And once you put those two things together, then I think you have an opportunity to more clearly articulate to students what the expectation is. Here's what you're going to do, and here's the depth of thinking you're going to have to reach. And the other part is you really can more thoughtfully and more purposefully put together a learning progression that truly leads students to that sophisticated level of understanding. So when you're looking at your standards, just to summarize as we finish up here, look at the verb, but also identify the depth of thinking. And when you put those two things together, your evidence of learning is going to be much more precise in terms of what the original goal was in the first place. Okay, three things as we close out today. First, a reminder about the Achieve Institute, the Institute focusing on promising practices in instruction, assessment, and grading. That virtual event will be this coming August 16 through 18. Uh, features myself, Cassandra Erkins, Nicole Dimich, and Katie White. So if you're interested in that event, head over to the solutiontree.com website for details. I've also added a link to that event in the show notes. Second, uh, tomorrow, April 27th, the four of us as well have a free one-hour webinar at 12 Eastern, so 9 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, and I've added a link uh, in the show notes for that as well. And third, uh, last chance for the Google survey regarding the summer series. I really appreciate those of you who've contributed uh, so far. So follow the link also in the show notes to the Google survey where you can help me choose the topics for the summer series coming up beginning sort of late May. And we'll run that uh, May, June, uh, July, and August. We'll run that kind of through through the summer. Uh, remember to follow the podcast on Twitter for updates uh, at Tom Shimmer Pod. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter as well at uh, Tom Shimmer. Uh, Shimmer Education on Facebook, uh, Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram, lots of places to connect there. And don't forget also about the YouTube channel, as I always mention, uh, Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube. I just loaded the video uh, interview with Natalie Conway about online learning, so uh, great to check that out as well. Please email your questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions you have for the podcast to TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be Natalie Vardabasso. Natalie is the Assessment Instructional Design Lead at Calgary Academy, and she is the host of the EduCrush podcast. So we're going to talk both about her work uh, as well as the podcast. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And if you like the podcast, please don't hesitate to spread the word about the podcast to your friends or colleagues. I would greatly appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.